Can you imagine life without music? That'd be weird, wouldn't it? Most of us get in our cars, and if it's not already on, what's the first thing we do? Turn on the radio. Why do we do that? Music. Can you imagine some of the great movies? Chris, can you imagine the sound of music without music? Yeah, the hills are alive with the sound of music. Wouldn't that be weird? How about South Pacific? You remember that one? You know, Bali High is calling. Yeah, I could sing that one for you. Let me tell you. I'm not going to though. You're welcome. Um, how about the, how about the, the how about the Disney things? Frozen, you know. Let it go. Just let it go. Can you imagine if she spoke that instead of saying it? That would be strange. Why are we talking about music this morning? Because music is really such a big part of our lives, if we're really understanding. Most movies have got soundtracks that add music to them, and they would be strange without them. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the the scene where Mary heard from an angel that she was going to carry the promised Messiah, and her response was just fantastic. She said, be it unto me according to your word. And her life changed from that point forward. And if you remember, uh, she also heard in that story that her close relative, who was apparently quite a bit older than her, uh, named Elizabeth, was also pregnant. You remember that part of the story? And so somewhere along the way, Mary says, I'm going to go see Elizabeth. And you're probably thinking, so they live down the street from each other. No, they probably lived about 90 miles away from each other. Scholars kind of uh, have a consensus that Elizabeth lived down uh, west of Jerusalem on the road down to Joppa. Uh, and so Mary went there. She probably had someone travel with her, though we don't know that from scriptures. But if you remember the story, at the beginning part of this story is when, when Mary comes into the, the house where Elizabeth is, Elizabeth's baby, who would be named John the Baptist, leaps in her womb. Can you imagine? Ladies, y'all, y'all, guys can only have a clue what that's like. But women, if you carried a child, you understand that feeling of something moving inside you and you go, that's not me. It's something else. Something else. That's a good way to describe our kids, isn't it? Something else. Anyway, but what she does in this song is just amazing. She sings, and we don't get the tune. Wouldn't you like to have this tune? So we could sing it. We don't have it. So we get lyrics is what we get. And she sings about eight attributes of God in in a relatively quick fashion, which will be hopefully the a theme for my message this morning, relatively quick. So you all with me? So there's eight things. The first thing, she starts out singing Mostly about herself before she shifts in the middle of the song. Look at the first thing author. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Can't you just hear that being sung? And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's singing about God as the saving God. Here we have a woman, and I say woman loosely because she's probably a teenager. We, We don't know if she was... Early teen, late teen, but she was young. But she's a woman who is well-versed in God's Word. She has spent time listening to the Word of God. She has probably even spent time maybe reading God's Word when she could because it was not common to have books available for people in that day. But in no less than 12 places in this passage, there's either an explicit or an implicit reference to an Old Testament passage. Here's a girl who knows her Bible. 
And then, well, she may be young. Her passion for God and His Word is clear. She understood who God was. She understood what God was doing and what God was doing in general and also what God was doing in her life in particular because she understood she was part of a sin-stained human race that needed forgiveness. You know, some churches teach that she was uh, immaculate and sinless. Her own words betray that thought when she says, I needed a Savior. Her response, in contrast to the broader response in a minute, is she says, I'm going to magnify the Lord. I'm going to praise the Lord. And while she was carrying the very Son of God within her womb that was going to make forgiveness possible, she stood in need of that same forgiveness. Now, that's a strange thought, moms, that the child you carried is the one who would bring forgiveness to you. But there she is. So her initial response is proper. Her spirit rejoices. She senses the amazing thing, and she says, My God, our God, is a saving God. Second, in verse 48, we find out he's also an engaging God. Look at verse 48. He says this, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, now all generations will call me blessed. You know, and the sings in this amazement, engagement with God, in her model, she's modeling this connection. So the God of the universe considered the life of Mary. Have you ever stopped to think about the life of Mary? We kind of referenced it a couple of weeks ago. But she was a nobody from a nothing town that nobody would remember in a few generations. And yet, God chose her. He chose to engage her as this humble servant girl. And, and so she bases her praise on God's willingness to engage in her life, to connect with her life, to speak into her life. In a way, this song harkens back to the song of Hannah. Do you all remember that one in the Old Testament where she praised God for the the child that she was going to carry? It wasn't the Son of God, but it was a promised special child nonetheless. And, and, And God's hand here brings salvation to those who are not from the upper classes, though he can do that, aren't you grateful? But also those who are viewed as nobodies, as nothings. Aren't you grateful? And in this light, she sees what God is doing in life. Something to be remembered, not because of her, not because of her goodness, not because of her amazing ability, but because God himself has come into her life. And she's not staking claim here as deity. She's far from it. She's declaring God's holiness at work. She says, God, you've engaged with me. Thank you. Third, she says, God, you're a holy God. Look at this. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And some of you would say, well, of course he is. Yeah, but can you imagine this moment, this environment she's in? She goes on expressing her understanding of the mighty God, what has happened to her. In fact, I think the short way to explain what's going on in her life is basically this, but God. But God. But God has stepped into my life. But God has spoken into my life. But God is moving in my life. But God is in my life. Wow. And here she is going, God, you're so amazing. These things are mighty. The great things you've done for me, the work you're doing in my life. And the holy God of the Bible has intersected in her life based on her ability, not her ability, her willingness to follow God. Remember her response at the end of the angel's encounter was what? Be it unto me what? How I want you to do it. No, be it unto me how you're going to work. What a great attitude she had. In many ways, it may be difficult to understand this spiritual maturity in one so young. Maybe we'd explain that by lifespans that were much shorter, lifespans that were much more serious. Uh, they didn't have 
the teen years that we have where the kids have no responsibilities much and they take care of them, do what they want to do. Instead, they had to scratch out a life. And she understood how God has worked. And then on top of that, her really religiously zealous family who had moved to that region, I believe, to, to be a part of what God was doing. And she understands that the holiness of God is changing her life, has changed her perspective, moving her in a new direction. He's a holy God. Next. Next. There we go. He's a merciful God. You ever have moments when your brain kind of goes, where are you at? Yeah, I just had that. He's a merciful God. Look at verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to to generation. Now what she does here is she shifts from it being about her and she begins to look at, now get this, teenage girl, look at the big picture of her nation. That's, that's amazing to me. In our day and age, a 16-year-old girl is probably more concerned about makeup, music, and boys, okay? Let's just be honest. But here she is looking to the big picture of life and singing about it. At this point, her song shifts from personal confession to corporate confession. She switches from singing praise about herself to singing praise on behalf of the nation. And you might stop and think, well, who does she think she is? Can I tell you who she is? She's a child of God. A child of God can do that, right? child of God can sing out and praise and speak forth and talk about what God's doing. She's part of God's chosen people. And as God was at work in her life, he led her to speak in such a manner. And, and the initial confession in this is this, is that God's mercy is resting on us. Now understand, this is not a fear of terror. She's not expressing she's afraid. She's expressing she's respectful. That God, you're the one. Your mercy is for those who respect you, who have a, a deference to you, who, who fear you from generation to generation. You know, see, all of us deserve judgment, don't we? She knew that. Hopefully we understand that. We merit the consequences of our sin, but thankfully God has, as I've already heard in this service already, He's made the way possible, hasn't He, for us to have forgiveness. And that's what she is integrally a part of. God is working in her life. There's something powerful about families raising their kids in the ways of the Lord. And Mary was a product of that. God was using her, a product of a faithful family, in a merciful way. She also sings about God as a powerful God. Look at verse 51. He has shown, <clears throat> excuse me, he has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. What she does here is she takes a focus on the, the promised Messiah. Let that sink in. The one she's carrying, the one that she has been entrusted to, to carry to term and to deliver on that night in Bethlehem in the future. He is the one who is coming and what he's going to do in the world. And, and what we find here is an interesting image, one that goes back into the Old Testament, including back in Ezra's story, of the mighty hand of God. The hand of God working here. He has shown his shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And while we understand God doesn't have arms like we do, per se, he does have power to accomplish. And he will work in a way that upsets the world's order that we live in. And those who are proud in their accomplishments will be humbled. 
And those who are humble will be lifted up. There's some interesting dynamic going on here. And the power of God can't be diminished. And she recognizes that. She goes, God, you're powerful. You're strong. You can do this. I know that you can. Her heart is beginning to grasp how radical this promised Messiah would be. She's carrying the one to change the course of history. Next, she speaks these words. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. I'm, I'm going to make a, 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 an educated conclusion here that every person in life is either one or the other in this verse. You're either a mighty person who has a throne. And you're like, I don't have a throne. You may be wealthy. You may be, have a lot of resources in your life. You may be that person. Or you may be what? One of a humbled estate. Mary probably fell into the latter of the two, by the way. She probably wasn't from a wealthy family. But what she's speaking about here is the equitableness of God. It says, God, you're an equitable God. In other words, God, you meet us not where they are, but where we are. So if you happen to be a, a wealthy person, God's going to come into your life and challenge that to help you see how to walk with him. And if you're a person of humble estate, he's going to all come in there and lift you up so that you can get past what your past is to follow God. It may seem strange to us that he would do this, but that's part of the radical nature of God. Because those who are powerful apart from God will see what they have slip away, and the powerless will find God opening doors for them. You're probably thinking, well, I'm not sure which one I am. Let me remind you on the world scale, the poorest Americans are wealthy world residents. We have way more as a country than most. And so we're blessed, but he's also going to use us to make a difference. That's why we do Lottie Moon Christmas offerings, why we do Annie Armstrong offerings, to send missionaries to share the gospel. He's using those of us who have to help those who don't. And those who don't have to learn to get past that with God's strength to move up. Why did God choose a poor peasant girl to carry a promised Messiah? Because he was going to exalt her and use her. And he's making forgiveness possible for us. Then, the seventh one. He's a blessing, God. Look at verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Another area Mary sees as part of the promised Messiah are the great blessings. And what she does here, she speaks of God filling the hungry and sending away the rich empty. In a sense, this blessing, she, in this blessing, she foresaw the fulfillment of the life of Jesus. And what theologians call the great reversal. God meets us where we are. He meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. Aren't you glad? If we were left where we were when we were lost, whether you were wealthy or poor, you'd still be what? Lost. But he takes us and brings us into a new reality. And she saw this in this moment, those who were lowly or exalted, those who were high or brought low. At first blush, this may seem like, well, that can't be God's blessing, but it is. Those who have little often find themselves what? We're focused on, and they're focused on survival. They're focused on trying to pay the bills, trying to figure out how to feed the family, how to clothe the kids. They don't have time for God. And those who maybe have much in life begin to say, huh, I can take care of this. I don't need God. And he says, no. She says, oh, look, he's going to fill the hungry. He's going to send away the rich. He's going to bring everybody to a place where we're at level at the ground of the foot of the cross. And he meets us where we are. And then he's a 
helping God. Look at verse 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Finally, Mary sings about the helpful and helping nature of God. She sees what is happening in her life as the fulfillment of God's promise from centuries before. Remember, Mary was a part of God's family by birth, okay? She was part of God's heritage through the guy named Abraham down to her. And remember what God had promised Abraham was this, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to cause the world to be blessed through you. I'm going to create a place where you will live and develop. And all, he says, I'm, and I'm going to bring the one who can make life possible, real life possible. And in her womb, God's working to bring about that fulfillment. So what do you do with this song? We don't know the tune, so we can't sing it. There's three thoughts I want you to see here. The first one is this, and it's probably the scariest of the three. I'm just going to tell you up front. Because it's the one that takes the most on us and on our part to make it happen. Is that we have to relate to God on an intimate level. And we're going to talk about the fear of intimacy this morning, okay? But many of us, when it comes to God, fear intimacy. We like to keep God at arm's length. We like to keep God at the church house, not at our house. We like to keep God in that part of life, but not this part of life. And I suspect that the big picture here is that he wants to be a part of every part of our life. The God of the universe invites us to connect with him, not on an intellectual level alone, not on an emotional level alone. He calls us to get intimate with him, to get close to him, to get up get up next to him. Remember when the kids were little and they'd get up in your lap and they'd, they'd curl up in your lap and they'd fall asleep? Oh, I can't do that anymore. They're too big, you know? But those were special times, right? Someday maybe I'll be a granddad and get to have that again with, with a grandchild. But that had that relationship, that connection that we have with him. See, one of the, uh, the lies the enemy is going to tell you is this. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't love you. God doesn't want to hear from you. Who do you think you are? You're nothing. You're nobody. He says, why do you listen to that junk? God cares about everything. If it matters to you, it matters to God. Everything. You go, well, God doesn't care about that. Yes, he does. Now, your, your, your husband or your wife might not care. Your kids may not care. But, but God does. Because it's important to you. It's important to him. And it matters to him. And the way we get in tune with God is to get in touch with God. But how do you do that? What's the mechanism? Well, you can't send him a text. Though I guess you could. We have to spend time talking to him. Here's what Jesus' brother said about this. You know Jesus' brother, James. He said this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The most obvious pathways to draw near to God is through communication. Now, how do we do that? Well, one is we talk to God. And some of you are thinking, well, I just, I don't know. I don't, think, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Another one is, is, is getting confessed up. You know what being confessed up is, don't you? It means that when we sin, we confess our sin. You're going, man, this is some tough stuff. Hang on. And hearing his word in our lives means we've got to spend some time in his word. Now, what we do with that is we try to make all of those this big, big 
tough ritual. We say, okay, I got to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to set aside two hours every morning. I'm going to get up early and I'm going to spend two hours talking to God. Have you ever tried that one? And you start praying and you look over at a clock and it's been three minutes. Right? And you go, I can never do that. We make prayer hard. Or we go, well, I got to read six books of the Bible every day. No, you don't. Just read something. Read a paragraph. Read a verse. Read six words. If you, I mean, whatever it takes to get a little into it. I don't want to confess. I, I, I could be wrong. I could be. I am. See, we make them tough, and then we don't do them. I, I really believe prayer is something that can happen every moment of every day. You know, I can pray while I drive. I don't close my eyes. That's a good thing, right? But, but I can pray and talk to God. I can confess sin as I'm having those conversations. I can spend moments in prayer. If I take the Bible app to help me do it, do it. Get in touch with God. Let Him speak into your life. Let Him talk to your life. Let Him let you talk to Him. It's this conversation that we need to have, and that will help you grow in your intimacy with God. How do you get to? How did you get to know the person that you chose to marry in life? You ignored them, never talked to them. No, you had conversations with them. You sat down with them. You, you shared thoughts with them. You, you listened to their thoughts. You had convert. That's the way we get close to God. That's how we get intimate with God. And when these things begin to flow organically in our life, instead of trying to structure them and making them rigid, we miss it. We, we, we get into the, the intimacy side by, by getting organic with God, getting close to Him, to walk with Him, to talk with Him, and listen to His voice. Is there a place for an appointment in the morning to spend time reading? Sure, there's nothing wrong with that. But it needs to be more than that, that intimacy. That's what Mary had in her life. She had a relationship with God to the point that she understood God's word. And when she went to write a song, and I didn't know she would have been a songwriter, but here she was writing a song, and she pulled stuff from Scripture into that. How did she know that? She'd been walking it already. That's where we need to find ourselves in an intimacy with God. Second, we need to live our lives in a way that we recognize his mercy in life. We, like Mary, are hopefully people who will live our entire lives following God. My prayer for you is that you find the Lord, you develop an intimacy with him, and you walk with him. But even if all that happens, the reality is in about three generations, people are going to go, there was somebody back there. Who was that? I know quite a bit about my family genealogy, and I've gone back and studied, but I get about three generations back, and I struggle to remember names. Is it because they're not important, right? No, it's because they faded from our memory. You're going, well, that's kind of depressing. I don't think it is. Recognition for our acts are not the most important thing in life. Receiving God's mercy and letting his purpose for our lives is much greater. That we live day by day by day in a way that honors God, that that blesses God. You see, whether you come from a wealthy background or a poor one, every one of us has to receive his mercy. Nobody gets the gift of God's salvation automatically. We have to ask for him to give it to us. And give it, he will. And his mercy comes in. 
Much like the disciples on the seashore or Mary when the angel told her what was coming, we have to take the first step and say, yes, I'll follow. I think of all the people in the Bible to whom God called and to each, uh, to a person, each had to do what we have to do. Every one of them. They had to say, yes, God, I will. It seems so simple, doesn't it? And yet we struggle with doing that. We say, well, I don't know if I can do that or not. And we don't respond with arrogance. We don't respond with pride. We but we do it with humility, a willingness to say, God, whatever you have for I'm reminded of the words of Moses as the people were headed to the promised land, but they were still struggling with some idolatry in their lives. And Moses told the people this. He said in Deuteronomy 4, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. See, God had made a promise before Moses that he was going to carry them to the promised land. Remember, Moses never got to see the promised land. He just got them there. He was part of that stage of life for them. But God says, I'm not going to let my promise fail. My promise is bigger than you. And then finally, one quick thought, and we'll be done, is to rejoice in your salvation. Let me ask you, child of God, those of you here who have trusted the Lord, do you rejoice in what God's given you? Or is it like, eh, I got it, okay. There should be more than that. I think many of us like the idea of God's salvation, but we don't really ever really rejoice in it. We, we may even see following God, well, I got to do that. I, we, we, we're, the, the enemy loves to get us into this situation where we come up with a list. Well, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And we miss the joy of our salvation. We become rule followers instead of Jesus followers. We miss it when we do that. When we see following God as a task or a chore, we miss the joy. So instead of expecting everything to go well all the time, instead we go, okay, God, I'm going to trust you no matter what happens. If you work something great today, I'm going to rejoice. If it's bad today, I'm going to, I'm going to rejoice. If it's somewhere in between, I'm going to rejoice. See, too often we view life through the lens of how we feel or what we want when we instead should be looking at the way God looks at it. He says, God, what do you have? In other words, be thankful for God. Paul wrote a, a little letter to the church at Philippi. And in there, he, he wrote an interesting passage. He said, rejoice in the Lord when you feel good. Y'all with me? He said what? Rejoice in the Lord when everything goes your way. Rejoice in the Lord when you feel good, when, you, when everything's great. Rejoice in the Lord what? Always. Now, when is that? That's always. Do y'all know, we need a definition of the word always? That means this, always. Y'all ready? Always. Always. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. He didn't put qualifiers on it. He didn't put conditions on it. He didn't say, well, if it goes your way, if it doesn't go your way, if it's this, if it's that. No, he said, rejoice. That means when things are just awful in life. And I know we get there sometimes, don't we? He says, rejoice. Because God is still God. Rejoice always. Thank him for the good days, the bad days. And here's what God invites us to do. He says, that baby that Mary was carrying, he's the one that makes forgiveness possible and salvation available to you. So we want to give you a moment if you need to respond this morning. Maybe you need to trust the Lord publicly today. You've maybe called on him 
in your heart, but you need to say in front of a comfortable crowd, I'm following Jesus. Maybe you need to connect to this local body of believers and say, this is my church. I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I need to make it official. I need to be a part of this place. We want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your house to worship, to look at this little song of Mary and the amazing words she spoke in those moments. I pray, God, that as we consider what to do with that story, Father, probably a story that most of us have heard countless times, but that, Father, we could emulate the woman who carried Jesus, his mother, not as our Savior, but as a role model that says, I'm going to praise God for what he does in my life and who he is in my life. Father, I pray for those who need to respond in some form or fashion. We give you these moments in Jesus' name.